Hi, and welcome to Just a GP. Today we are joined by our whole crew. So we've got myself, Beck Hoffman, Charlotte Hespi, Ash Broomfield, and we have our special guest today, Todd Cameron. So today we'll be talking about something which I am recently new and excited to, and that's starting or buying into your own general practice. So I think I said this was a highlight of the week for me a few weeks ago. And that is that I've actually bought into or bought a part of the practice that I'm currently working at. And as a new fellow, this is a huge step for me to take in my general practice career. The excitement and the highlight of the week has probably worn off a little bit as I now find I have more questions than answers that I did before I started. So I'm very excited to have Todd on to talk about this with us all. To get us started, I thought I'd start with a highlight of the week and see how everyone's weeks have been. I might jump to Charlotte. You've had a very big week yourself, a very big few weeks. What is your highlight of the week this week? Great question because my highlight was actually last night. The GPSA and GPRA, which is the two organisations that oversee supervisors and GPs, held a webinar last night interviewing all six candidates for the president election. And as many of you might know, I put my hand up for being one of those candidates. And at the moment, we're midstream of the candidate campaign. This is not an advertisement for my campaign. I'm just saying how much fun I had last night in the webinar. We got five questions without notice, three minutes each of us, random selection of when you got to answer. So you sort of knew nothing and you could just have fun. But at the same time, it was really serious topics because it's, it's all about the sustainability of general practice and GP training, etc. And it was just really interesting, great questions and great responses from all the candidates. So I think that I would say that was my highlight this week. And it's probably just a reminder that this is the first year where there's been different sorts of platforms where all the candidates can express their plans and outlines and talk to those questions for such a long period of time. So it's really important for everybody to get to know the candidates and and really tap into the and vote for the person they feel is most appropriate. And following that, Ash, what is your highlight of the week? My highlight was that I'm currently doing a certifications with the Possums Clinic called the Neuroprotective Developmental Care Accreditation. And I've been doing some revision as part of the preparation for the final exams. And some of those revision resources are from a couple of years ago, the initial workshops that Pamela Douglas and Renee Keogh were doing. And they were just talking about all the different things that they had in process and all the things that they were planning to deliver. And I could see now a couple of years down the track, those things had been put in place and the stuff that they were creating has happened and there's much more movement happening in that space. And I just had this moment where I went, wow, like you can actually enact positive change within our healthcare system. And it does take a lot of tenacity and 
time and effort and sometimes just waiting for the engagement of the right people for it to all flow in one direction, which I kind of was so excited about. I went, we need to have Pam on to talk about that for our next podcast. So I was excited when she said she'd come on and chat about that process. Cool. I look forward to having her on. That's really exciting. Todd, what has been your highlight of the week? Well, it was interesting. I was thinking there's probably a lot of things I could choose, but I'm going to choose the one that's literally right in front of me at the moment. This week, I received a new desk that I ordered a little while back because there has been a large run on on sit-stand desks. So I got, I think it's called a Zen Space Desk. And uh, this is the, like a corner version. So it's got three legs that go up and down. Um, and I'm not doing any gaming on it, but it's like the Gamers Deluxe Edition or something like that. And that's pretty awesome. It's a gunmetal grey top and it's got a bright lime trim around the side. And it goes between, I'm not quite sure how low it goes, but you'd have to be on your knees. I'm not particularly tall, but it goes up pretty well up to my mid-chest height. So it's a pretty impressive piece of kit. And I look a lot more flash standing um, near a desk that is impressive. So I'm going to choose my <laughs> new desk. Sounds really cool. I would love to actually see a photo with that. Very cool. My highlight of the week is I have this incredible plant growing on one of my shelves in my room and it has gone absolutely insane in the heat that we've had. And I had a patient come in the other day and ask if she could actually take a little cutting of it. And of course I said yes. And she was so excited. She actually cried. She was like, that plant's amazing. I want to propagate it and have a piece of it. And it was so lovely to do something that was so meaningful to somebody else and absolutely made their day. And it was just a really nice highlight. So, Todd, for anyone who doesn't know you, how about we start off by you introducing yourself and then maybe getting underway with a couple of top tips or convincing people why we would possibly think about going into GP ownership. Thank you. So I'm a GP by trade as they say, and back in 2003, started my first general practice, built that up. And when I began with one, my intent wasn't to build you know, a chain of practices, but that is what ended up happening. An empire, Todd, an empire. <laughs> and then I had this sort of unusual turn where the opportunity arose to put the two largest practices into an ASX-listed shell entity. So businesses die everywhere, and they also die on the ASX. But their slot is worth something. You know, if we decided today that we wanted to set up an ASX listed business, just to get that little slot opened up is somewhere between a half a million and a million dollars. So something that dies has value. And so this was an old mining company called BGD that ceased to exist. And the opportunity was there to put the two largest clinics into that entity. And that's what we did. And then I became a director of that company, which was subsequently renamed as Zenitas. And over time, up until December of 2018, I remained a director. That company was taken private by interests associated with two of the directors. So there's a little bit of fun involved in, you know, the conflicts of interest being managed there as a director with the chair and one of the other key directors being involved in the takeout. That was taken private by private equity money in December of 2018. And in that time, it had revenues of $175 million. There were 12 GP clinics in that enterprise, 65 allied health, pretty well all physiotherapy, businesses in home care and mobile services into aged care facilities. 
So a fairly broad suite of community-based services, all, all health related. And so, you know, I learned a lot during that time. That was quite a lot of fun. And coming out of that, my passion is really around allowing general practice owners to get their lives back through business excellence. During my time there and prior, I spent a lot of time with owners and seeing how much time, energy and money they put into practices and they just weren't getting the returns that they deserved. And so that's been my mission since then. And then um, Sachin Patel, another GP, and I set up a business called Scar My Clinic, which is all around serving that audience, that community. And I still part own three clinics in Melbourne where I'm conducting this conversation from. I love that term, getting back your life. So what, what were you noticing were the barriers for practice owners in living while practice owning? It's a really good question, Ash. I think there's there are a few issues and some of them relate to our wiring as owners. You know, we're not particularly good at sharing our failings. There's a lot of reasons for that, but we just don't tend to do it. And so what you find is that people outwardly might look successful, but typically when you look under the hood, you know, owners can easily be taking home a lower retention than contractor doctors that work there. So it's not uncommon to have, you know, other GPs working as part of a clinic taking home 60, not taking home, but retaining 60, maybe up to 70% of the revenue that they generate from patient billings and have an owner that's actually retaining about 40 to 50% just because those are the ones that are sponsoring the running of the business. We're not particularly well engineered at being firm with the people we work with. So, you know, with our patients, we're often not great at necessarily drawing boundaries and often we're fairly soft around understanding that people might have reasons why they don't deliver on the promises that they might make in the consulting room. And that doesn't necessarily cut us out, make us in a great position for, you know, the HR kind of problems that come because we're not having clear you know, roles and goals in our organisation, for example. So oftentimes I'd be the one after looking at a business, breaking the news to the owners that they didn't make money. And that's pretty galling. You know, that's sort of like sitting down with your patient and breaking bad news to them. And you're saying this business that you think is awesome, that you've built up over 10 or 20 years, you realize it actually doesn't make any money. And they would often look at you blankly (laughs) at that point in time. So Todd, I'm interested because that's probably a result of the fact that we as GPs are passionate about doing a good job of caring for our patients and the business sits behind us rather than in front of us. So there's that sort of fine line of actually being able to get us to engage with the concept that running a profitable business isn't a dirty word. How do you go about helping people with that dilemma? So there's a really good framework here that is something that I was introduced to by a book from Mike McCallowitz called Fix This Next. And what I really like about it is it talks about the layers of business ownership, much like Maslow's hierarchy. And so the bottom layer is revenue. If you don't have revenue, you actually don't have a business. So, you know, to use an example outside of our space, you know, if we were to open a restaurant or a cafe together, uh, we could sit around all day and debate how much we're going to charge for Eggs Benedict and, you know, uh, Cafe Latte. But the reality is it doesn't actually matter that much what we charge for those things. What matters is that we have a big enough population of people that are willing to pay for that. If we don't have that audience, we don't have anything. So your first job is to build an audience. And that's what revenue is. 
And then once you've built an audience and you have revenue, your next job is to ascend to the next layer of the business hierarchy, which is profit. And once you have locked in profit, you need to really look at the layer above that, which is order. So order is about reducing waste and improving efficiency. And one of the challenges is, I think as doctors, you know, we're often worldwide for uh, perfection over progress. We can want to have, and you know, so we're accredited and there are people that are assessing our systems, but I'm going to say something that sounds a bit outrageous, that systems don't really matter that much when you're a small enterprise. And the reason is that you're just getting stuff done. So you can focus on getting a perfect system built, but the reality is as you grow, your systems need to grow with you systems and processes and so at the start you're kind of at the center point for most decisions and although that feels uncomfortable it's probably appropriate that that does happen at the start so you have a handle on most things and then you've got to pick the right point at which you move away from that above that the impact and the legacy layers are very similar to the higher layers on maslow's hierarchy a lot of businesses never get below those bottom three layers. They just keep recycling between them, which is fine, but they just won't leave a lasting impact on the communities that they serve. And one thing that I think is an important frame for understanding what a general practice is, actually, maybe I should ask, Bex, and as you've just bought a general practice, how would you describe a general practice? What actually is it? So what is a general practice? So a general practice, well, what I like about this general practice is it's a space, a location that people come to when they need a service or they need some information or education. They're coming there with a purpose and we essentially provide a service for their needs. So I think that's a lovely description. And the way I describe it is we're a marketplace. So what we do is we provide a space for general practitioners and patients to come together. And we're the facilitator of those relationships when we're an owner of a practice. Because without either of those two, then obviously the business doesn't exist. And if those two don't match each other, then that's a problem. You know, we need to be really clear who we serve and why. Something else that we're not really good at is, as GPs is who we're not for. So that's not the same as saying we won't serve this type of person, but we should be clear that our whole enterprise is geared towards understanding exactly what patient avatars we serve. And that's a little bit like, let's just pretend there's a corner pub that's been there for eons and the same people have been in there regularly drinking and having their meals for a long time. Then someone buys it, renovates it, and turns it into a gastro pub. They don't actually say to those original patrons, you're not welcome. But what's clear is by the changes, it's clear that there's a new level. So they have two choices. One choice is go to a place that is more like the old place. Or the second choice is upgrade your game. Maybe that's, you know, wearing some fancier clothes or, you know, trying out a new menu, but they can actually play the game at that level and remain in the same place. And I think our clinics are the same. You know, if we say, for example, if the target market for a practice was young families and women's health, you would expect that that practice, both in decor, in the services, the amenities, and the breakdown of the doctors would probably look quite different to one that has more of a focus on executives or one that has more of a focus on, God forbid, travel medicine at the moment. But, you know, they would all look and feel differently, and they should. One of our challenges is that we tend to say we serve everybody. And to be blunt, you serve everybody in marketing parlance. That's a nightmare. You know, you can't market anything to everybody. There's just no such thing. So 
I think it's really important that we're clear on exactly who we serve. If we know who we serve as patients, then it's much easier to recruit the GP avatars that match perfectly with those patients. And then those people are much more likely to stick for much longer. The concept of this is this notion of a minimal viable audience. So the idea here is you would rather have a smaller group of people who deeply love you and appreciate your service than a larger audience of people who kind of are a little bit meh, but they care a little bit about you. And so that comes back to you know exactly how well you align your marketplace, your clinic, to the needs of your patients and your GPs. So Todd, with that, I have two questions. The first is, how do we reconcile the idea that a general practice should be serving the needs of their population and the idea that we need to be reorientating our businesses towards particular parts of the population? And then number two is, in areas where the regional or rural areas where the practice of the town kind of is servicing most of the community, you know, from birth until death. How do we reconcile that? As long as you can pick the common threads in who you serve. So, you know, people in a regional area, are, I'm going to suggest, are often going to have some common attributes. You know, they don't choose to be in an area like that without having some things that are really important to them. And so, you know, that can become who you're for, who you're not for. So it might be that literally we're for small country people, not for big city types. And that might sound really weird, but uh, you're going to get some people that obviously move from a big city and migrate to those areas. But them just knowing that there's an identity of some sort that a practice has is going to be really important. So it's not the same as saying that you say no to people. It's just that you should be clear about what positioning you're occupying in the marketplace. So, you know, you wouldn't often see a car yard that sells everything from cars that are sort of $10,000 up to $200,000 just because there's such a wide range there between all of the services they offered. So, for example, if you were in a, a rural community, you might segment your market somewhat and say, of all of the patients we serve, they broadly fall into, say, four or five groups. And, you know, you're always going to have young families as one group because those people or those groups rather are higher frequency users of medical services. We know that from the Medicare data. And they're going to have different needs to, say, people that have chronic medical conditions. But one other thing that people often run really effectively in rural areas is a skin service, for example, where you might do a lot more work on skin cancer. Now, what I'd propose in that kind of environment is that you actually pull that population out and offer it as a specialised service. So you might set up a part of the clinic where you had workflows that were simplified and sped up. So for example, you could do an assessment and biopsies in a single visit if you knew that it was a skin consult only, and you might then make the second visit, the procedure visit, rather than what would normally be sort of a three to five visit cycle between visit, talk about something, come back, have the biopsy, come back, talk about the biopsy, come back, do the procedure, come back, review the procedure. You could compress that 
to a shorter duration. And in doing so, you can actually then charge more of a premium for that service because it respects the time and importance of time of that subgroup. So part of it is to pick out the areas that you're going to do. And again, I'm going to use an analogy here, which is like a plane. Remember those? We used to jump on them and fly to distant parts of the world before COVID changed things for us. The plane doesn't leave without economy class being full or pretty close to full because that pays for the plane. And then there's a business class and a first class. You can't make a business class plane. Actually, an Australian did try to do this and it doesn't work because there's not enough people that are prepared to pay that much that use the service frequently enough. And it also doesn't give an aspiration to the people in economy class to graduate to the business class. Are you saying it's all aspirational that drives us? I do think that's a really important part of business full stop where you price your service at a level that is appropriate for what it is that you do. You know, I I think one of the challenges is where we in healthcare and particularly in general practice, you know, can fall prey is that we allow others to price our service. And this is not necessarily about what we're worth. I think we often use the wrong language with this. This is not about worth. This is about value. So what you really charge for is value. And if we can deliver great value, so the example I gave there was of a skin service where it's a compressed number of consults, it's highly efficient and effective, and that delivers value back to patients because they don't have to come in as many times. And what you can then do is reprice that service for the value that it offers. If somebody determined that they would rather drive to, you know, whatever might be the nearest place to get that service done for free at a hospital and wait for that, then that's fine. I think that's the part that not all of us are comfortable with. We might think, you know what, we should help all of those people. But as I said, part of what we're doing is to say, if we're going to offer a specialised service, it should be priced appropriate for the value that you deliver to your patient and to your community. And some people will have more time than money and might determine that that's not for them. That might make some people uncomfortable. But I think, you know, the challenge in the marketplace is if you're trying to position a service as a premium service, then at times you're giving it away at no cost then it's pretty hard for the people that are paying a premium not to be a bit frustrated about that. And I'm not suggesting that we privately bill everybody, but I am suggesting that the service that are highly specialised, that people often undertake extra training and skin cancer would be one of those, you know, there would be a lot of areas that are non-procedural that people are highly proficient in. I think people need to be comfortable with our community saying, I can't afford to get that service locally, I need to go somewhere else. Because to be blunt, that's the type of pressure that you know needs to be exerted elsewhere in the health system. Otherwise, it all rests with us and we have the prime responsibility of delivering all health services at prices determined by the NDS. And if we were to interview GPs, we'd probably find that there's a fair bit of frustration with that kind of philosophy. But to be blunt, we adopted ourselves and that's part of the challenge. So, Todd, what do you mean by you can't create a business class plane when we're talking about general practice? Um, Just expand a bit more on that comment, Ash. You were talking about how you need to look at the primary way that you generate revenue, but you can't focus just on creating a business class. What does that mean in translation to general practice? So we're really talking about breadth, and this comes back to the audience. 
So this largely depends on where you are. So for example, in Queensland, you're much more likely to be able to set up and run a successful skin cancer only clinic. That will probably be harder to do in Tasmania. You know, it's just about depending on what the local needs are. And so again, this is very much, if we use a restaurant analogy, would you prefer to go on offer, you know, the restaurant type that doesn't exist in the local community or does the fact that it's not there say that there isn't a demand for it, therefore you'll give people a choice on what they already get? I think, you know, again, if you were to break that down to different philosophies, both of them have some merit. But if we try and do a business class only offer, what it means is that you're, and so let's bring this back to a general practice that just exclusively privately builds. What you'll find is unless there are no alternatives, which is a a different case altogether, that's more about market capture and monopoly pricing. But if there are alternatives and you analyze what happens in your clinic, what you'll often find is that some of the consults that are available to your practice will be leaking out to other clinics. And, you know, we know that the average number of consults Australia-wide for Australians per year with the GP is 6.1. And so if you're only seeing people for two of those six, it would be really good to stand back and say to your colleagues, I charge $90 for a level B consult. But what you're really doing is doing only one third of the work that's available to be done for that patient over the year. And so what that means is you need to do some work on your value proposition, the value you're delivering to the patient probably needs to be assessed because what that means is they don't always see that it's valuable. And this is a really useful analysis to do on a practice. Has that better articulated what I was saying? Yes, it has. And I guess what I'm wondering is, does that mean that you look at the types of consultations that you're delivering and price those differently? So we move away from, you know, standard consultation, long consultation, extended consultation to more of a focus on the content of the consultation? Yeah. So I think this is an interesting space. And the real answer to this is it depends what our patients want. I don't think we're very good at actually asking people what they really want from us. And we have unnecessarily created a lot of friction in them gaining access to us, you know. So an old style practice was that the front desk was kind of, you know, and I'm using air quotes here, the wall. So you had to get past the wall in order to get access to the GP. And I'm going to liken this to Bunnings. Most people know what Bunnings is, but there's a person at the front of Bunnings whose sole job is to say hi, to make eye contact with you and welcome you to the store. And that's an important job that Bunnings has decided is going to be present in every single store, including the new ones they open. The way that we have approached the way that we engage with our patients in the past would be a lot like that person telling every second or third person to bugger off and come back at another time. You know, I think it's really important that we understand what our patients need and that we do our best to repurpose our practices to serve their needs and to be really ruthless in making sure that we are delivering on our promises to them. I'm interested in how do you cater for equitable access for those people who really can't pay or do you see that they should go to a public access clinic that doesn't need to have the same bottom line value? So for me, say in my practice, we have a large number of patients who just can't afford to pay for anything above Medicare by and large, particularly when you look at the cost of medications and things that they might have to pay for with 
their multimorbidity and multiple medications. I personally am very happy to pay for that will subsidise, I suppose, the fact that they access my clinic on the basis that I want them to access high quality care, despite the fact that they can't pay. And have built that into my practice model where those who can pay do subsidise it and by and large our patients who pay know that that's what it is because they know the model of practice and the clientele that we cater to being across the entire sort of socio-demographic range from the very poor through to the extremely wealthy. So can you take me through that with your model, Todd? Yeah, I think this comes back to who you serve. So there are probably some challenges that you'll find in serving those two communities, not because there's problems with those communities, but when you drill down into what those people need, they're going to be quite different. And so the challenge would be that if the back end was the same for both. So, you know, the the MBS rebate doesn't include any as it stands. So if you're doing a lot of bulk billing, it doesn't include any allowance for what I'm going to call after sales care. So, you know, it doesn't include an allowance for phone consults, which up until recently haven't been able to be funded. So I would be really clear that if we ran a service that was centered around the needs of people that are socially disadvantaged, then it would all be centered around making sure that there are clear, structured, strategic visits, which are all of your care plans and care plan reviews that are mandatory for patients that they are appropriate for. You just say that it's really important for us to get on top of all of your needs and they will be somewhat social as well as biological and psychological needs. So it would be clear that the expectation for that group of patients is that they would regularly attend those visits because you want to have some strategic planning that happens as well as the tactical visits that are generated because something isn't working properly or they just need some assistance or something's broken or needs fixing, something's gone wrong, that's fine. But if you were to provide the same type of service to people that are paying, they probably would find that it doesn't quite fit with their needs, that their needs may be more about, they may have less availability of time and they may have more money. So it does need to be a slightly different model of care for both. But if you applied the expectations that the people that are paying full private fees to the ones that are you know, being bought, billed for one of a better word, you'll probably find that you're running a business that makes no profit. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously your risk. I mean, it, it is an interesting proposition, isn't it? So certainly in my practice, we do adapt to that. So for instance, patients who can't afford to pay obviously have to come in more frequently for face-to-face visits. And that's an expectation that they do that in order to do those things that we're happy to do over the phone for patients that can pay and they pay for that privilege. So I think that's a good example of segmenting, you know, your different, we just call these patient avatars. So segmenting them and really addressing their needs. The other group may have most likely more social disadvantage and potentially less health literacy. So, you know, more frequent visits make sense, but it would be important to tease that out into separate workflows. So quite literally there was no overlap. You know, what you don't want to do is give either of those groups the normal approach of the other because it wouldn't sit very well with them and that kind of makes sense. Although, you know, again, if you were in that group that were being bulk billed, who wouldn't love all of that other attention? But the problem is that it's just going to send the practice broke. You know, you you can't offer that same level of service and follow-up 
with the lower revenue base relating to that other patient avatar group. And I think somewhat I've noticed a lot of GPs kind of do that without realising, you know, but it's not kind of set up in terms of the workflow or the understanding amongst the whole team that you would have a slightly different approach depending on the patient avatars in the business and that you might feel like you more wanting to call someone who's pays you privately every time compared to someone who there's no remuneration at all or coverage at all for the non-face-to-face time when you see them, but it's not necessarily incorporated into the system of the practice. Yeah, I agree, Ash. And it's important that it is because if everybody in the enterprise is aligned to how you serve each of those groups and how you serve them depending on their own needs. So this is where it's really relevant to do some really deep work on the avatars to understand them. And when we do this with clients, we get them to name their avatars. And the avatar, the first name would usually be the first name of you know a patient that comes to mind. When I sort of said, you know, who is it that you think about when we describe this particular group of people in your practice? And, and in an ideal practice, there's probably, you know, five-ish avatars when you break it down that you'd be able to describe in fairly great detail and what their needs are. And then it should be clear in the group, in your clinic, exactly who you're serving, what their expectations are. So those expectations can be easily laid onboarding. So, you know, again, a lot of practices won't onboard new patients. They'll just kind of make an appointment, show up, see the doctor, and that's it. But it kind of makes sense that we should be identifying where they fit into the model of care that you provide, what your expectations of them are and what their expectations of you are and how you will deliver on your promise to them and what other services you offer from your practice that they may not be aware of. They're really important things to think about when patients are first introduced to us. Todd, I have a further question about your avatars. Mostly, how specific of an avatar are you looking at and how important is it to be a practice avatar versus a practitioner avatar? So, for instance, within my practice, we would each have specific sub-interests or specialty interests and we would often refer to each other or within each other if our patient, for instance, wanted a marina they'd come to me if they wanted some mental health which is outside of my availability they'd go to someone else if they wanted shared care they'd go to somebody else and we'd keep it all in-house or as much as we could but refer in-house within the GPs so essentially each GP probably has a slightly different avatar which means in total we're probably servicing more than five But as a whole, the practice is quite different depending on which GP we're talking about. That's an awesome question and I'll answer it as best I can. You're exactly right. So one of the things that we uh, try and understand is where the gaps are in service delivery and practices and recruit doctors with those interests. Can I ask you a question, Beck? Do the patients know who they should see or is that kind of mostly known by the internal team? So I guess we all advertise on our website what our special interests are. When they phone up, if they've, for instance, if they're there for shared care, they'll be referred to one of the ones where that's a special interest. Or if they've looked online, they can self-nominate to someone who they think will be best fit. Most commonly, it happens by word of mouth, though. At a mum's group, they go, you should see X and Y, which probably happens more than you should go to practice X. I think, well, there's two really cool things there. One is you should ask for referrals from patients. You know, we're not very good at this because we don't like to ask. 
But the best patients that will come to the, the best fit are probably the friends and relatives of your favorite patients because they're going to be not unlike them. And so let's use the example that you were talking about there with contraception and particularly Marina's IUDs. Then what you could do, for example, is to help your patients know exactly who you serve is you might decide that you'll do a series of posts on your clinic Facebook page and you would talk about the common questions that people ask you about contraception and what types of thinking might guide the decisions that they make. Now, again, you're not giving clinical advice. That's important, but you certainly, it's reasonable to say these are the five common questions people will ask. If you're not sure what questions people would ask, you know, obviously they do actually ask you, but you can go to a website called Answer the Public and just type a question in there. Uh, there's a wheel that comes out of it and 100 questions will pop out that are common questions that people are asking on the internet about, say, for example, you just type in Marina or IUD, you'll get 100 questions. And what you could do is make a promise that you're just going to do a video and answer one of those questions each day, or you could sit there and do, you know, 90 second answers to each of those questions, one after the other. And in an hour and a bit, you'll have done a year's worth of content. And then you might just put that on your, either your website or on your Facebook page or whatever other social media, but I would recommend that you use Facebook as your first point of call. And then what that does is it speaks to the community about the types of problems that you as a practitioner like to help people solve. And you would sprinkle through that, you know, the information about your avatar. Now, Marina's a kind of self-evident group that you're selecting for, but, you know, you might talk about the people that you most love to serve. And let's just pretend that was professional women that are working that find this fits into their lifestyle well. And you might just sprinkle that kind of background about your preferred group of people that you serve in that space through the content that you provide online. So it just helps people to come in being better informed about who they should be seeing. And you're more likely to get somebody that rolls up on your appointment book that is exactly who you serve rather than close enough, but they need to be referred to a colleague, which is different to being referred for a part of their care, which is what I heard you talking about there, Beck. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Cheers. Todd, I have a question about practitioner confusion. And what I mean by that is when I first started general practice, I chose general practice because... I like everything and I could never choose one thing that I really liked. And I also noticed, you know, coming up to five years post my obtaining fellowship where I'll no longer be a new fellow and I'll enter the mid-career GP stage of my career, that I found myself having a little bit of medical ADHD where if I saw a lot of kids for a while, I'd start to kind of go, eh, I'm a bit done with paediatrics, I might shift my focus a little more and you know it took me a while to get an idea of what I really liked and I'm only just now five years post my fellowship so you know that's seven or eight years in general practice finding the people that I really enjoy working with and the kinds of consultations that I really get a lot of joy from rather than than being interested in everything and I still notice that to maintain the joy for those consultations, I still need a little bit of the other stuff too. But, you know, if you'd asked me two years ago, and I'm pretty sure we might have sat down and had this discussion anyway, you know, what would you set your practice up like? I would have said, oh, I don't really know. Like, I don't really know who I really enjoy. I like everything. What do we do for people that are yet to find their kind of sub niche or passion within medicine? Because it takes time to figure that out. 
That's a great question. I think, you know, general practice by its nature is general. And, you know, we do have an obligation to find out all we can do, but not do all we find out. So part of it is to try a lot of things. One of the questions, there's two sides to the joy thing. You know, I like that you kind of use that notion about what it is that sparks you. And the other side should be what patients, you know, most resonate with you. Like, where do you exert? So I think, you know, the the focus I have in life now is in where can I make the biggest impact? And so sometimes the question is, which patients do I make the biggest difference to? Which patients do I change the course of of their, the natural course of what's going on in their life? And so for some of us, that's people with addiction. For some of us, that's people that have chronic pain. For some of us, it might be that they have psychological disorders. For others, it will be it will be very different things for all of us. You know, somebody's going to pick fibromyalgia as an area that is their passion. But you can imagine that if somebody is really clear on who it is that they love serving, and by definition, that audience will usually love them as well, then they have a really powerful position in the market just because it's really clear who they stand for. And so... You know, Beck raised this before to say, well, all of the doctors will have different groups that they serve. And I think it's clear that, like I said, if you take that mindset of the marketplace to a greater extent, then really it is just a marketplace. And we need to be providing a platform for those people to talk about who it is that they love to serve. And it's going to be like a big Venn diagram. There'll be an overlap between people, but there's some clear expertise where either the doctor loves it and it might just be an area that you think, you know what, I don't mind doing it if it comes up, but it's just not the stuff that I really go home. If I saw 20 people in the day with that problem, that would drive me spare. And there'll be somebody next door to you that says, ah, man, give me those 20 people. I love that. That's really where we need to get to, where we're all seeing as much as we can of what we love. But one way to get back into the generalist stuff, I think, is to run, you know, what I would call an express clinic or an access clinic. So, you know, if your clinic has difficulties with people getting access, you just don't declare who the practitioner is on those sessions. And it might be two hours, it might be four hours, it might be a whole day, depending on your practice. And typically, if you don't do these and they're only kind of a four hour block, they probably should run from around about 10 o'clock in the day onwards because usually people are going to call in the morning when they want an appointment. The evidence is pretty clear that if they don't get a time, you know, prior to three or four o'clock, there's a fair chance they'll be shopping that around and going with the better offer. So you could easily just all take turns at working in an express clinic where you get to see a variety of problems. And part of that is active triage to the right GP that you think is the perfect fit in that practice at a time that's right for that patient. I love that because someone once said, you don't find your interest area, your interest area finds you. Yes. Can I say that's my experience? And it is really fascinating. I was actually even just reflecting to a medical student yesterday. I do quite a lot of transgender medicine. And if you'd asked me when I graduated whether that would be one of my special interests, I can't say I would have nominated it, but I happen to work in an area where that's a need and I love it. And it's been a really good area because certainly when I first started working in that area, nobody else was doing it, particularly not in general practice. And it was very hard to find out any evidence or how to take care of them in a way that was very patient-centered and around their own needs. But, you know, that's been a really lovely specialty or special interest to have found me, can I say. I think that's a nice little segue into our highlight of the week. I would love to get Todd back to ask a zillion more questions that are running through my head. 
But let's move on to our pearls of the week. And I'm going to start with Todd. What's your pearl of the week? What's your clinical resource that you want everybody to know about? Well, I had a bit of fun this week in that being Melbourneian, you know, we've been pummeled a bit by COVID. And so the number of healthcare workers has really frustrated me that are involved in the active case numbers. And so just doing a bit of a deep dive on PPE and the way we use PPE in general practice, I think has been of value. And the way we deliver care in, we call these green, orange and red zones. I did share that widely, but I'll stick it in a few more places. But yeah, just doing a deep dive on that. And I only have two questions for people that are deciding what PPE they should use in what environment. The first question is, what will you do when you get a COVID positive patient in your clinic? that was not unwell at the time, i.e. screening failed to detect them, as in what conversations and who do you need to follow up afterwards? And the second question is, uh, what happens to the patient that followed them in? And what conversations, if any, do you need to have with the patient that followed the COVID positive patient in? If you can answer those questions and uh, your answer is, it makes no difference, then you're probably right. But if you think, uh, um, uh, not sure, I'd be a bit nervous, then you probably need to review the PPE that you're using in your practice at the moment. Very interesting. Ash, what is your clinical pearl? I'll do a little plug for the special interest group for climate and environmental medicine. And it's a really active special interest group to get involved in. Uh, Some really engaged and interested members. They have regular meetings and create and curate a lot of resources. And there's a lot of doctors in those group who are also related to the group Doctors for the Environment Australia. They've just recently set up subgroups in the special interest group. So there's education subgroups looking at education around the effects of planetary health and human health. And I've just been kind of re-inspired about little different areas to work within and this group is a really fun group I think and probably a group to get involved with in relation to the kinds of things we may be looking at in the future of healthcare in Australia and the world. Well I'll move on from that one. Thanks Ash for putting us into being environmentally responsible and all of those things and that group is an amazing group, so I'd encourage it to. I'm going to go into a slightly different area tangentially with COVID-19 a bit, but touch on e-prescribing. So in terms of time-wise, this is just after a bit of a an interesting dilemma with the launch of e-prescribing with the software and then the Guild having throwing a little tanty and saying they weren't ready and so best practice and others pulling their e-prescribing. I'm just going to do a blatant encouragement to everybody to be absolutely ready to go with e-prescribing. We have actually got the e-prescribing happening with best practice and what we've done is we went out and actually had a conversation with every single one of the pharmacies that we fax prescriptions to and so so far because of us pushing and saying we're ready to go we've got four pharmacies who just this week have all come online and are ready and rearing to go and actually asking us to prescribe that way and it's been just really good to well a as a slow launch but also because we've actually engaged with our community pharmacy, which is a great opportunity to, I think, improve relationships all around with community pharmacy so that we can actually deliver better and safer medication prescribing for our patients. That's awesome. 
That is really cool. My clinical pearl of the week is entirely non-clinical, but a reminder that the bushfires weren't actually that long ago and a lot of the towns that were impacted then are being impacted again. And there is a wonderful Facebook group, and I'm sure they're on other platforms as well, called Buy From The Bush that actually links you with some of the small towns and small communities that you can't currently visit and can't in person go and shop at, but you can visit their online shops and buy from them. And that's actually where I got my spectacular plant from that someone stole a clipping from was a little family out in Tarmore who currently can't sell to the public and they've actually been shut down again now with COVID, but they're selling their plants online and they're doing some spectacular work. So lots of online shopping being done in Australia. Think about doing some online shopping from our rural friends too. Thank you so much for all coming along and chatting. I had a wonderful Friday afternoon and I think we should do it again soon. Sounds great. Thank you all. Thanks, Todd. Talk soon.